0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude, it's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit canduwealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Lancashire but moved to London to pursue her love for dance. She started age three and by the age of 20 had become a teacher in her field. From here she formed the dance troupe Hot Gossip and made regular appearances on the Kenny Everett show, catapulting her into the public eye. She went on to be involved with some of the biggest productions on the West End, including Grease, Guys and Dolls and The Sound of Music. She's also choreographed films such as 1982's Annie and has worked with some of the stars like Freddie Mercury and Tina Turner. In 2004, my guest was on the original judging panel for Strictly Come Dancing, uh, one of the nation's favourite TV shows, and stayed there for several years. She's had no shortage of awards, but most recently received royal praise, awarded a Damehood in the 2021 Birthday Honours. Now past her 80th birthday, she continues to choreograph and support many charitable organisations. My guest today is Dame Arlene Phillips. Arlene, thank you very much for joining me today for the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. On this podcast, we tend to begin by always asking the same question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood?
1: Oh, I wouldn't describe it as a happy childhood at all, actually, Um, although there were moments of happiness.
0: Obviously, don't say anything you don't want to say. But growing up, I mean, I mentioned that you were in Lancashire and then you moved to London in your early 20s. Was that about dance or did you also want to be out there on your own?
1: Okay, it was a difficult childhood because I was one of three children and we lived, I guess, certainly in some state of poverty. Um, My dad was not a well and healthy man, Um, so it was difficult for him to work. He was intermittent. My mother, who was the most beautiful human being on earth, struggled, you know, with three children and an unwell partner, husband. And sadly, she passed away when I was 15. And when I was born, 15 was still young. Nowadays, we see 15-year-olds are so grown up, not in my time. So it was difficult. It was difficult. I was one of the have-nots. And it's hard being a have-not when you are surrounded by the haves.
0: And you mentioned uh, the sad passing of your mother when you were 15. At that point, I'm right to say that you ended up leaving school and not returning.
1: Yeah, I left school um, because I'd missed so much school, staying at home to help her as she had leukemia. And uh, at that time, leukemia was a very unknown disease. No one really knew how to treat it, you know, blood transfusions. But it was pretty much in a ward that seemed to be gradually filling up um, in the hospital with patients with cancers and blood diseases, but yet the doctors didn't really know what has caused this change in, in people's illnesses. My mother and indeed my father both loved classical music and the ballet and therefore We would occasionally go to the gods, standing, you know, either at the back of the stalls or up in the gods to see the ballet. And that's an overriding memory. And their love obviously seeped into me because all I ever wanted to do was dance. It was the only thing. Every book I read was about dance. Everything I wanted to see, a film, it was about dance.
0: And you started dancing when you were three. At what point were you having lessons? At what point did you start to think, not only is it something I love, but is something that you think you're good at?
1: I never thought I was good at dance. I just thought, this is what I want to do. This is the place I want to live in. This is my safe place. I started at three and uncle paid for my ballet lessons. And then I stopped going because I had a very strict teacher. And I wanted to dance. I did not want to be told what I had to do and be told off if I couldn't do it. And so I stopped. And then when I was nine, I um, got my uncle again to help pay for ballet lessons so that I could go to what I called a proper ballet school, not just some hall where the teachers shout at you. And from that moment on, that was my haven. Being able to go into a dance class was all I lived for. I had no plans of making it a career. Had actually wanted to go to a dance school in London when my mother passed away. So I didn't get my dream, but I did manage to get a scholarship from Manchester County Council. And I was the first girl in Manchester to get a scholarship to go to study in a dance school in Manchester as opposed to going to London and I fought pretty hard for that sitting in this large chamber room begging all of these people who hand out grants to please please let me dance and they did and I studied and then I stayed in Manchester to teach and eventually decided to go to London and seek my fortune.
0: (laughs) And just, I suppose, before we get to London, you mentioned earlier almost you know feeling a bit so you're in the have-nots. When you won that scholarship, obviously a brilliant achievement, and you're in the class, did you feel different to your fellow classmates or actually did you all feel kind of as as one block in the end?
1: I think by the time I went to full-time school, I... Disregarded the fact that I actually had to walk up sixty-nine steps on a Monday morning to get to the studios at the top of this big building, um, Dean's Gate, Manchester. Um, it doesn't exist any longer. That whole part of Deansgate Gate changed. And on a Monday morning, when I was a student, they would whiten the steps. The steps would be cleaned, and they put this kind of stone whitening over the steps. And if it had been raining. I had holes in my shoes. So every step I made was leaving a little patch of wet where I walked up the stairs and I hated it. I kind of went sideways on my feet. I did everything so nobody knew it was me with holes in my shoes. So I think I became aware, really, Quite into my twenties, when I had moved to London and I'd become ambitious, that I could be a have, I could be. I just had to work for it.
0: Now you get to London. I suppose for listeners, can you just describe what the, the scene was like at, at that time in terms of you know shows, fellow dancers, actors, and so forth.
1: Getting to London was a revelation. I started studying at a place called the Dance Centre which was the first in the UK, actually, where people could go in, take a class and pay for a lesson at a time. Traditionally, if you wanted to dance, you would go and pay for a term of dance. It didn't exist that you could go into a building, literally put down your money on a table and join in a class of every different kind. The classes I joined were modern American jazz Uh, lyrical jazz, things I had never done before. They didn't really exist. They came kind of with West Side Story, which was a revelation in itself. And here I was working in this dance environment, doing every job I could to pay to live in London, working in cafes, anything I could do early morning, late at night so I could fill my day with dance. One of the jobs was babysitter for Ridley Scott, which turned out actually to be my kind of step into my have when he knew I could dance and hired me to choreograph a commercial because he knew this Babysitter was the one that knew quite a lot about dancing. So making a commercial wasn't hard, but it gradually changed my life in London. The streets were buzzing. It was the early 70s and it felt like a whole world
0: had changed from the Manchester that I used to live in, which was sort of sitting still in the 60s. That's so interesting. And around that time in the early 70s, you formed the dance troupe Hot Gossip. How did that come about?
1: Well, eventually, the one thing I knew how to do was teach. So I started teaching at the dance centre and my classes called Rock Jazz began to be so popular. Everybody kind of came to me, the teacher that was kind of changing the face of dance.
0: And it's not to interrupt, Julian, but I suppose just for listeners. What does rock jazz look like? Ah,
1: rock jazz was a a sort of a louder, noisier, freer form of traditional American jazz. Jazz was pure. Jazz was, as we know, the jazz hands, the correct stance, the hips. Rock jazz was moving further into the world of popular music of bringing in a little street element to it. It was sexy. It it just changed the form slightly for young people of the day. And my classes were chock-a-block. I mean, Cosmopolitan magazine did an article and there were rows of people down the street coming to my classes that I'd never seen before, packed out classes. And when I looked at television... It was all very happy-go-lucky. It was not at all embracing the elements of what was going on in the world outside a dance class. And I wanted to bring that street energy, that sexuality into it. So I pulled together some of the best students from my dance classes. They were very diverse, racially diverse, And that was because there wasn't jobs for them, either on TV or in the West End. It was a very white world. And so my hot gossip, which I thought everyone's going to love, they're sexy. They were working in a club one night a week. and We were loved by the glitterati, if you like. They came once a week to see hot gossip doing something different. And I thought they would be a great success on TV, but for three years, not one director, not one producer would use hot gossip, saying they are too damn sexy for television and they cannot be on television. Until one day our saviour came along.
0: (laughs) And that was the Kenny Everett Show, am I right? The
1: Kenny Everett Show and the brilliant director, David Mallett, had seen a photograph of hot gossip an outrageous photograph that had been in a magazine called Ritz magazine, which was a newspaper for the glitterati, for, the, for fashion, for art, for stars. It was an unusual and brilliant, brilliant magazine. And one photograph, and he said to his PA, get me Arlene Phillips, get me a Hot Gossip, they're going on my new TV show, the Kenny Everett video show. And, you know, people think it was an overnight success. It wasn't. But famously, Mary Whitehouse, um, the so-called self-acclaimed protector of public morals, was outraged that this group could even be on a television show at a time, you know, before 7 p.m. that young people would watch girls in stocking and suspenders and boys embracing boys it just was a no-go and we made the front page of every newspaper and that was the moment when I woke up with you know the group and my face all over the newspapers that my life changed and everyone thought it was an insta moment it took a long time
0: and at that point, do you start to get lots of opportunities or do you feel that doors are opening in a, in a way? Obviously through slow, sustained work, but, you know, when it hits?
1: When success or fame hit and it hits hard, your life changes. I mean, not just because you are asked to comment on television, on any show that's asking for comment, on almost anything and everything, whether you know anything about it or not, because your name has become a public property name. And so all kinds of doors were open. To me, it was eventually leading to theatre, music videos, TV commercials, endless, endless opportunities that I never expected to come to me. And that was all through hot gossip, making that mega splash
0: And I mentioned in the introduction that you choreographed, uh, you know, West End and Broadway shows. What was it like the first time you did that? Did it feel as though it was, I don't know, a step up might be the wrong word, but just the, the scale very different?
1: It was all such a different life. Suddenly I was living this different life. Instead of struggling and trying to manage the doors open, literally flew open, and one of the earliest things that I um, choreographed in Los Angeles, taking along Hot Gossip with me because the producer of the film, Alan Carr, was so enamoured of Hot Gossip themselves, he wanted not just me, but he wanted them in the film. And it was a film that was with the village people, who were a massive success, number one at the time. And he made this very, very unusual film called Can't Stop the Music, which was based on the village people. And it was they themselves, but they were about to start a group and form a group. And some of them had girlfriends, which was so far removed from fact, You know, because the YMCA and the village people were a spectacularly popular group because it appeared, you know, to the public, this was an LGBTQ group. And the film, like many, many pop stars, by the time the film came out, the group had gone from being number one because it takes a year to make the film, a year to edit and get and promote. And with that two years, the village people, their popularity had failed. But also the film got probably some of the worst reviews from a musical film ever, anywhere. It has a massive cult following, interestingly, and it's played in a lot of the IMAX cinemas you know, because they they it it actually brings a wonderful, wonderful uh, crowd from the gay community to see the film, who embrace it with every piece of their heart. It was wild, it was wacky. It had massive great dance numbers, and actually led to be my next film because of the big dance numbers, uh, which was Annie, and um, that was produced by Ray Stark who had seen Can't Stop the Music and loved the dance numbers.
0: And Annie, of course, a big hit. I want to talk, obviously, a little bit about Strictly, which I think lots of our listeners will know you from. But I'd wonder first, just all, these, all the work you've done as a choreographer on you know, big shows, productions, have you ever had a situation, not naming names, where you've had to work with, I suppose, the talent and you, you get someone who's just not very good at dancing and you've got to work a work way around it?
1: I think I embraced working with non-dancers very much due to my work on music videos. Um, MTV, I was working with a company called MGMM that had three of the hottest, most desired um, directors of making music videos. And they always called on me. So I was there literally almost day one of MTV. And of course you get incredible stars that can dance, but you also get a lot who either can't dance or want to dance. And what I aim to do is make every one of them feel at home, feel at home with the movement, always introduce them to the way we want to dance is the way they feel if they're listening to a track on headphones and how they walk. Most people who think they can't dance actually pace their steps naturally when they're listening to music through their headphones. It's like the heartbeat. You can't stop your heart beating at a rhythm. And as you hear the music, that beat somehow steeps into your heart. So you start walking down the street at a rhythm. And walking, as we know, is only one step away from dancing. If you look at John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever, one minute he's walking and the next minute he's in the disco dancing. And it's like a continued rhythm. So it's a place to start. So I always encourage people, just walk with me. Let's listen to the track. This is your track, your music. Let's see what we can do with that and how we can make it look like because you turn for a moment. You've got your back to us. You turned for a moment. Even working with Whitney Houston, when I first worked with her, she was very shy of dance on how will I know. But we did lots of walking and turning and feeling the rhythm. And then a few months later, when I went to New York to do I Want to Dance with Somebody, she wanted to do every step with the boys. She wanted to know the steps. So I think it's always being kind and caring and making them realise you are actually
0: placing what they do in a comfort zone. That makes sense. And I mentioned Strictly, I wondered, when you first agreed to do it, and you were an original judge on the panel, did you have a sense that it was going to be this smash hit that it became? Or were you surprised when the first episode came out and suddenly everyone... Is stopping you.
1: Um, I did the pilot with Len Goodman, and the pilot was crazy and messy, and it didn't feel like anyone knew what they were doing. And Len and I had a deal, if you get this, you know, I'll do it. And I said, if you get this, I'll do it. It was like this pact we made. You know, should we do it, should we not? Because he was part of the original Come Dancing, and so he had all of that in his mind. And he thought this was going to be crazy. Eventually, he agreed to do it. So the two of us went ahead. Then was Bruno and Craig. I personally didn't think it was going to be a hit. Uh, I'm not sure any of us did, really. And I think it was a moment. I had an old BlackBerry phone, you know, original BlackBerry, that I didn't use very much. And there were maybe one or two comments from people the first week, two, three, four. But there was a moment, I think it was show six, but I'm guessing, where um, Brendan Cole, who was dancing with Natasha Kaplinski, did the most amazing tango. It was strong, powerful, sexy, and... Brendan's hand was trembling as he placed it on the back of Natasha. And I suddenly went, wow, I've got goosebumps. This is really something because Natasha was quite shy and quite afraid of dancing. And then suddenly she was fearless. She'd passed that mountain and just started to come down the other side of success. And my Blackberry that night, had so many messages on it, I knew that this show was going to be a success. I knew because of the way I felt and that response amongst the number of people that had and were able to message me.
0: And and you did it for several years. So did it change your life in the way that, I mean, you'd obviously had a very esteemed career in advance of this, but I suppose it's the thing which meant People off the street would just know who you were. I wonder, did you suddenly feel that you had fame in a slightly different way than you had it before?
1: I think I had the kind of people-know-you-on-the-street success when hot gossip hit, because I'd used my name on the photograph. It was called Arlene Phillips Hot Gossip. So everywhere a hot gossip name was mentioned, my name was mentioned. And that's when I said I was constantly asked to do things, whether I knew about them or not. So I was on television frequently and became the voice of dance. So there was a lot of success, a lot of being recognised, but also how quickly that goes away. And so for years, I'd been a working choreographer, and had my taste of fame. I didn't realise it would ever come round again. And I was always aware as quickly as it comes around, it will fade again, which it did very quickly after I was let go from Strictly. So I think it was very good grounding because that kind of success and fame is brief where you become the number one on everyone's list. It doesn't last. And you have to understand there are two lives within your life. One with this kind of success, which honestly bears no relationship almost to what you've done or to you. It just is. And then it goes away again.
0: And you mentioned then being let go from Strictly. At the time, it crossed over. I mean, I spent most of my time in Parliament in Westminster, and it actually became a Westminster story at one point because Harriet Harman intervened, the Labour politician, and said you have been unfairly dismissed. What was it, I suppose, could you, if you could just talk us through, I mean, finding out you were going to be let go and then the storm that followed that as people started to say, well, would you have done that to a man? Oh,
1: Yeah. I think men get away with a lot, and still do. It was difficult, I can't deny how difficult it was. I woke up one morning, the night after my manager had passed away from cancer, and I was awakened by my phone ringing, which was actually behind my bed, and picked the phone up at 7am, because I thought it would have something to do with Michael, and my I answered the phone and it was five live and asking me how I felt about being replaced on Strictly with Alicia Dixon. I knew nothing about it. So I said, I'm really sorry. I've had a bereavement. Um, I have to go and put the phone down. And from then on, my life was a whirlwind. I couldn't get through to anybody to speak to until lunchtime at the BBC there were newspaper vans, there were reporters, there were television vans lined in my little street. There were doorbell rings, money offers to talk being pushed through the door. So it appeared everybody knew this news. I was the last one to learn. And it was very difficult. You know, I was coping with a bereavement. My call was the person who found me with hot gossip in its early stages and became my manager right up until that moment and um, got um actually negotiated the job on Strictly. And um, he was everything in my life. So I had no one to even call to say this is happening. So it wasn't, it wasn't easy and it wasn't an easy thing to get over. And yes, Harriet Harman did speak up and Yeah, I don't think the BBC were particularly kind or helpful. Or I actually was, and I think it absolutely is because of the bereavement, able to really handle what was coming up or what they offered in compensation or anything. I just, I just was at a loss.
0: And what about your colleagues, your fellow judges? Did you feel there was much, I don't know solidarity I suppose you know logically you wouldn't expect someone to step aside because because you weren't there but did you feel there as much I don't know reaching out to you after then obviously being going back a long time ago.
1: if I'm honest I don't think they were advised that it would be a good idea at this moment in time I'll just put it like that we all probably motivated by me Eventually got in touch and made everything okay. It's not their fault, actually. It did, really didn't have anything to do with them. Well, I certainly hope not, but I don't think so. I think they're put in a, a position of what do you say?
0: And I suppose just the final thing on that, I wondered I mean, looking back on it, do you think it was ageism? And if so, do, do you think it's improved in terms of women? in these positions, you know, since that's happened?
1: Deep in my heart, I don't think they thought I was right for the show. Deep in my heart. But I think the chance had passed for them to say that, the chance to do anything about it had sort of passed by this massive eruption. Um, And I think the idea that they were entitled to change around the brand and the need to refresh the brand was the given reason. I think it was difficult for anyone to speak up at that moment because of what happened, because of Houses of Parliament, because how deep it went into the heart of the BBC. I think it's difficult to repair and time, you just... You just get on with your life. I think I would have been different had I been, like,
0: my feisty self. I wasn't at that time. But now, in that time that's passed, I mean, I think you've clearly uh, kept being very busy with your career. I think you, you know, and I talked about, for example, your damehood in 2021. So, and it's interesting what you're talking about in the sense because you obviously had the experience with the dancing troupe you're someone who is well enough grounded to not be defined by how many people know you <laughs> in the public or fame, etc.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was so late to get onto social media anyway. I think my sister was on Twitter before I was, and she said to me, I don't get it. Everybody says Arlene Phillips and your age. She said, you, you seem attached to your age because I was already an o- older woman when I was on Strictly. And uh, I really didn't go onto social media until quite late. So by the time I did, I do what I want on social media. It's never been something I've pushed or had hired a social media guru to push who follows or who knows me. Most people today still recognize my voice. If I go into a shop, I say, please have you got and they, oh, you're Eileen Phillips, aren't you? you tw- it's my voice they recognise.
0: I mentioned your age. You're now 80. And you said, you know, that you're not someone who feels 80. What is your focus now? As in, do you want to, you know, keep... Uh, you're still passionate about dance?
1: My focus now is, number one, to spend time with my grandchildren. I have two adorable little girls, actually almost three and almost five, And I I love and adore them. So I do want to find time in my life or make time in my life to be a grandma. And at the moment, I go round to the house of my daughter, Alana, and and these little girls wrap their arms around my legs. Grandma, grandma. And it's the biggest high I could get. But I do have work coming up. And I'm now trying to space it out, turn down work, But if I'm passionate about something, say yes. So I live my life between my work and my family.
0: And the final question we ask everyone on this podcast, and I'm sure you've had lots of it, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And it can be that you took the advice and regretted it, or perhaps you just completely ignored it and stuck to your guns.
1: I think the worst advice I was ever given was stay on the back row, as you will never be a dancer. And that was given to me by... The lady was called Miss Tweedy, and she ran the ballet school, and it was when I was 10 years old, and everybody at the back wore black leotards. You were only allowed to go to the front when you were perfect in your dance, and you could wear a pink leotard. I dared to go to the front in my black leotard you will never dance not only did i become one of her teachers and one of the best teachers she had but i made a lifelong career where so many of those beautiful dancers
0: didn't thank you arlene for joining today thank you it's been so good to talk to you